0: It's a very exciting time to be in sexual health. Recently, we've seen the approval of flibanserin or Addy, the first and only FDA-approved drug for hypoactive sexual desire disorder. I'm your host, Dr. Michael Critchman, host of SexMD on ReachMD. And joining me today is Dr. Cheryl Kinsberg. Cheryl, tell us a little bit about your background and where you're from. Uh, it's really exciting. I know you've been involved with flibanserin and Addy, Uh, for quite some time, and I know the viewers on sex med are really interested in hearing about what you have to say.
1: Thank you, Michael, for inviting me on the show, and yes, I do think this is an exciting time for sexual health. I have, um, as a clinical psychologist, I've been involved in sexual health and sexual medicine for about 25 years, Um, and I am involved both clinically um, seeing women and couples who have uh, a variety of sexual concerns. Uh, I've also been involved in teaching medical students and residents, uh, and I've been involved in clinical research for about the last 15 years, uh, starting early on with um, with the intrinsic trials for the testosterone patch for hypoactive sexual desire disorder in postmenopausal women and now fast forwarding through, um, flibanserin and addy. So I was a clinical trial investigator for the phase three trials both in pre and postmenopausal women. So it's been very exciting to see that the FDA finally approved, uh, flibanserin after, uh, almost a decade of research in this area and it is probably the most studied um, drug of almost any kind in almost any area of medicine, with over 11,000 subjects in these phlebanserin trials. And to me, um, the approval of Addy is probably the biggest uh, step forward in women's health since the pill was approved in 1960. It's a long time coming.
0: That's great, Cheryl. I really appreciate the uh, quick overview. Give us a little idea about the clinical endpoints and how that really translates into uh, patients and what they say.
1: Sure. Well, to start with, Flabanserin, or now the brand name will be Addy, is a non-hormonal treatment for HSDD. It is a a daily uh, pill, 100 milligrams, uh, taken, actually I say daily, but it's taken nightly because one of the side effects is that it makes you sleepy. Um, and, uh, it is essentially works, um, to correct what we consider the neuropathology in HSDD of a dysregulation between the inhibitory and excitatory neurotransmitters in the prefrontal cortex. So essentially it's a 5-HT1A agonist and the 2A antagonist. So, um, keeping serotonin uh, lower, and increasing dopamine and norepinephrine. That's a theoretical um, mode of action. Uh, in the clinical trials, uh, there were three large phase three clinical trials in premenopausal women. Initially, um, way back many years ago, uh, the endpoints included um, a daily diary um, the and uh, satisfying sexual events uh, and distress and the FSFI, the female sexual function index. Well, we learned uh, fairly quickly that the to ask women to rate their desire, particularly women who have no desire, on a daily basis um, was not a great endpoint. Um it number one it causes uh subject fatigue and there wasn't a, a great deal of compliance and it's hard for women to really sort of microscopically zone in on what their desire is on a daily basis when we consider desire from more of a global gestalt perspective, sort of as a state. So it was essentially a failed endpoint. Um, it, it, it was close to significant, but it did not meet statistical significance. And so when, uh, at the time, Beringer-Engelheim um, tried to get uh, and approved because it did not meet that primary endpoint. It obviously did not. And so the FDA advisory committee at the time said, um, you know, we think that there's, there's promise for this drug, um, but you need to do, you know, run a clinical trial with endpoints that actually meet physical significance. So the, uh, more recent, uh, trial included a much better endpoint, which was the female sexual function the uh, desire endpoint, or the desire subdomain endpoint, along with satisfying sexual events as the key uh, primary endpoints, with distress as a key secondary endpoint. And with those endpoints, in fact, uh, flibanserin showed statistically uh, improved um, performance on all three endpoints. So that was the uh, the data that moved forward um, to get flibanserin or ADDI approved.
0: So, Cheryl, if I have you correct, you know, it's not only about frequency. Women have improved desire. They also have decreased distress. And, you know, I think it's quite important to remember that uh, every woman herself will really define what desire is. And I think one of the important facets to remember is that the patient-reported outcomes were very positive in this case. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to Sex Med on ReachMD. I'm your host, Dr. Michael Critchman. I'm here with Dr. Cheryl Kinsberg. And for those of you who are unfamiliar with her, she is uh, the Chief in Division of Behavioral Medicine, Department of OBGYN at McDonnell Women's Hospital, uh, University Hospital's Case Medical Center, Professor in Department of Reproductive Biology and Psychiatry, Case Western Reserve University School of Medicine. And Cheryl is one of the uh, key opinion leaders and world experts on uh, flabanserin or Addy. So Cheryl, just to kind of give us uh, a better overview, tell me a little bit about the benefit-risk ratio. And there's been all this hype about the alcohol and the driving study. Can you kind of just simplify those results for uh, our listeners?
1: When the FDA is evaluating uh, whether to approve a drug, they're certainly looking at not only the benefit but the risk. Um, And one of the concerns about the benefit uh, was, I think, sort of a misunderstanding of what uh, the results suggested in terms of uh, of benefit. Uh, One of the, the, the points that they argued initially was that the benefit or the efficacy was modest, and therefore compared to a risk, uh, essentially, no amount of risk was acceptable because the the benefit was so modest. But what they really came to understand is that modest was actually very meaningful to women. Uh, and as you pointed out earlier, the the uh, patient Global index of improvement really suggested that the efficacy that was shown was quite meaningful to patients or to the women in the in the trials. And what's important is looking at the concept of desire and the scale that was used. When you're looking at desire, you're not expecting women who are, for the most part, in long-term committed relationships and wanting to restore their desire. What they're wanting is to feel desire sometimes. And so what you see is the the desire scale moved from absolutely no desire to having desire sometimes. And guess what? That's exactly what women want and expect in terms of restoration of their desire. If they had moved from no desire to having desire all the time, that was not actually a desired outcome. That would have suggested hypersexuality and the FDA certainly wouldn't have wanted that, nor did women want or expect that. They wanted to restore their desire to some. So that's why modest was meaningful. Uh, similarly, with the idea of satisfying sexual events, a lot of people kind of, um, you know, sort of raised their eyebrows as, you know, there wasn't a huge jump in the number of satisfying sexual events to suggest a great benefit. But, in fact, women coming into clinical trials for hypoactive sexual desire disorder, for the most part, are in long-term committed relationships and are having satisfying sexual events at baseline. So when you can show an increase, and in this case there was a statistically significant increase from the flibanserin uh, group to the placebo, that's pretty impressive. And when you can then show also in the responders, the the number of satisfying sexual events went up um, five to eight more times per month, that's pretty impressive. Showing um, that responders, if it's going to work, it's going to work well. So. This is not just, uh, no benefit. On the risk side, which you were alluding to, were the fact that the most common side effects, I call them sort of the seven dwarfs side effects, were sleepy, uh, made, made about 10% of women, you know, sleepy, which is why it's dosed at bedtime. Um it gave, it, it created the dizziness in some, headache in some, nausea in some. The worrisome side effects for the, uh, for the FDA were, um hypotension and syncope. And if you look at the rates of that, they're very low. You had .5% of either, uh, of the combined syncope and hypotension for the flabanserin group compared to 03 in the, uh, in the placebo group. So it was a very low rate and not significant, and not a great deal more than, uh, in the placebo group. Now the other thing that, uh, that worried the FDA is, uh, alcohol use. And so the company, Sprout, decided to do uh, an extreme alcohol challenge, hoping that that would address the worry about alcohol use with LeBanserin. Um, and so, unfortunately, in this extreme challenge, it was hard to recruit women. Um, so that was one complaint, because to ask, um, uh, women or anybody to, to, um, complete the alcohol challenge was essentially asking people to drink two to four glasses of wine rapidly within 10 minutes on an empty stomach in the morning and um, lots of the women that tried to be in this trial ended up uh, throwing up and so they couldn't keep the flibanserin down but in the 25 subjects um, who did complete the the study, about 25% experienced dizziness and therefore the FDA has contraindicated alcohol use of any kind while women are taking flibanserin. To be fair, though, you have to realize that in the large phase three clinical trials, um, about 60% of these women, and so there's you know about 4,000 women in these phase three trials rated themselves as um, as casual drinkers, and so of those 60% who were drinking during their phase three trials, uh, six to 12 months, there was no signal that alcohol was a problem. But for now, alcohol is contraindicated. The other worry for the uh, for the FDA was driving, that they were worried about next-day driving impairment because of, um, because taking flibanserin can make you sleepy. So uh, the company, Sprout, conducted a driving study, a next-day driving study, and, in fact, uh, there was no statistical um, uh, impairment in driving for the women on flibanserin, and, in fact, they actually did better, uh, and they drove better than women on placebo. So uh, in this risk-benefit, there's clearly benefits and really a very modest risk.
0: Great, Cheryl. Thanks for that uh, quick summary. And for full disclosure, I am uh, a a flibanserin certified provider, and uh, right now an additional level of surveillance is clinicians and pharmacists have to be certified. You have to go online, do a review of some slides, answer some questions, do an attestation, and then you can be certified and pharmacists have to do appropriate counseling as well. And there's a a specialized Um, consent form that needs to be done. Cheryl, before we conclude, I just wanted to kind of get just a quick answer. You know, there's been all this hype and I would say negative press about this medication, calling it the pink Viagra uh, and what have you. We certainly know it works in a different uh, fashion on a different mechanism. But as a sex therapist and as somebody who sees someone who's counseling, just give me a quick overview. You know, I know this is not for everybody, and I think it's going to really increase the need for people to see therapists as well. Any idea what's going on, why people are so concerned and so afraid of this uh, opportunity for women to discuss a potential medical treatment for their concerns of lower distressing uh, libido?
1: Well, I do think that there's a, a, essentially a misguided feminism that uh, that the idea is that when you have a pharmacologic option as opposed to just diagnosing somebody with HSDD, which also carries a DSM diagnosis, and um, and using psychotherapy as a treatment for the disorder, somehow making it a pharmacologic option somehow you know creates greater pathology or over-medicalizes medicalizes uh, what has already been considered a medical condition. So I think that's a little misguided um, and creates a double standard there. Uh, but for me, the idea is, uh, you know, I, I'm never going to be without a job. There are always going to be women who really will benefit from psychotherapy to address low desire. Uh, but what um, what the DSDS, the Decreased uh, uh, Sexual Desire Screener, will allow uh, even a generalist who's not a sexual medicine expert to do is to tease out um, who might be an appropriate candidate for a pharmacologic option and who would better better benefit from psychotherapy. And uh, and so I think it's relatively easy to do. And I think it will be very similar to how we understand depression that some women will benefit from pharmacotherapy alone, some women will benefit from uh, psychotherapy alone, and some women will actually benefit from the combination. And so it's not a one-size-fits-all. Not everybody will benefit from one or the other. Um, and it really is just the idea of giving women options, that they can decide with their healthcare provider whether they want to try a pharmacologic option or psychotherapy. And guess what? If something doesn't work women are smart they're not going to continue with something that isn't helping them
0: so cheryl thank you so much for being with us today we've run out of time but always a pleasure and exciting opportunity to have you talk about such an important topic that you are so passionate about
1: thank you michael
0: I'm Dr. Michael Critchman. You've been listening to Sex Med on ReachMD. Be sure to visit our website at reachmd.com sexualmedicine to download this segment and others in this series. And remember, sexual health is really general health.